Hey, engine professionals, machinists, and enthusiasts, welcome to the Engine Professional Podcast. Listeners, uh, Chuck Lynch here, and today I have Dave Hagen with me. How are you doing, Dave? Yeah, I'm doing just fine here. Uh, waiting for a little more spring to get in the uh, area here. Still a little chilly here. I guess it is winter, but we're just waiting for a little bit of warm weather. Yeah, I can hear that, man. I tell you what, we we always battle the ice. It seems like to the Ohio River Valley and ice seem to be synonymous with winter anymore. It's crazy. Right. So, um, hey, let's, uh, like we typically do, is kind of kick off with some history. So, um, fitting for this month, um, the Daytona is such a, a big deal. So, on February 21st, 1948, the National Association for Stock Car Racing, or NASCAR, as it will become widely known, is officially incorporated. NASCAR will race. NASCAR racing will go on to become one of America's most popular spectator sports, as well as a multi-billion-dollar industry. The driving force behind the establishment of NASCAR was William Bill France, Senior, 1909 to 1992, a mechanic and auto repair shop owner from Washington. D.C., who in the mid-30s moved to Daytona Beach, Florida. The Daytona area was a gathering spot for racing enthusiasts, and France became involved in racing cars and promoting races. After witnessing how racing rules could vary from event to event and how dishonest promoters could absound and prize money, abscound the prize money, excuse me, France felt there was a need for a governing body, a governing body to sanction and, and promote racing. He gathered members of the racing community to discuss the idea, and NASCAR was born. With its official incorporation in February of 1948, France served as NASCAR's first president and played a key role in shaping the, its development in the sports early decades so nascar held its first strictly stock race on june 19 1949 at the charlotte speedway in north carolina some thirteen thousand fans were on hand to watch glenn dunaway finish the 200 lap race first in his ford however jim roper who drove a lincoln collected $2,000 prize money after Dunaway was disqualified for illegal rear springs on his vehicle. Started right away, huh? Oh, boy. In the early years of NASCAR, competitors drove the same types of cars that people drove on the streets, like Buicks, Cadillacs, Oldsmobiles, among other, with minimal modification. Today's cars are highly customized. Yeah, not a great representation of a stock car today, but still. <laughs> right. So in 1950, the first NASCAR-based track, the Darlington Raceway in South Carolina, opened. <clears throat> Mar 
more new raceways followed, including the Daytona International Speedway, which opened in 1959. Lee Petty won the first Daytona 500, which was run on February 22nd of that year. The Daytona 500 became NASCAR's season opener and one of the one of its premier events. That's uh, Lee Petty's son Richard, who began his racing career in 1958, won the Daytona 500 a record seven times and became NASCAR's first superstar before retiring in 1992. On February 18th, 1979, the first flag-to-flag coverage of the Daytona 500 was broadcast on television. At the end of the race, an end-of-the-race brawl between drivers Carl Yerbarrow and Bobby Donnie and Bobby Allison was a huge publicity generator and helped boost NASCAR's popularity on a national scale. So they were a little bit of fighting there. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that a lot in, in records. So in 1972, France's son, William France Jr., took over the presidency of NASCAR from his father. Over the next three decades, the younger France, 1933 to 2007, was instrumental in transforming NASCAR from a regional sport popular primarily in the southeast U.S. into one of a global fan base. France led NASCAR into a new era of lucrative corporate sponsorship and billion-dollar TV contracts, which continues to this day. Um, Again, it's... It's kind of funny, you know, NASCAR kind of starts out with their Super Bowl instead of it being at the end of the year. Um, but, you know, if you don't know about the Daytona race, you got your head in the sand. <laughs> it's a big event. Yeah, it's uh, like you say, the Super Bowl of uh, the car races. So um, today, Dave, um, we want to talk magnetism. So, um, the, the topic or the title of this podcast is going to be magnetism and part cleanliness and the impact it has on quality and performance of your engine. Okay, so yeah, magnetism, people kind of forget about magnetism. It's, it's something that uh, it's present uh, a lot of places, and it's not necessarily a good thing in the engine. Um, checking for it is, is somewhat crucial to uh, a successful engine build and higher horsepowers and bigger engines. It, it can be quite detrimental to uh, uh, components if it's inside the engine. Yeah, so, um, you know, if you take a look at magnetism, um, you know, thinking about how does it get into the parts, um, you know, it could be failures, um, it could be new parts and how they're handled. I know one thing that, uh, that I observed in a manufacturing facility that makes engine bearings is 
they get these big stainless steel surfaces and there's actually a magnetic conveyor that runs underneath so the steel back of the bearings um causes the bearing to actually be drug across those you know steel surfaces and move station to station so they had to have a process to take the magnetism out that they induced um things such as you know if you get engines from a junkyard and they get the big magnets that move the engine cores around that could induce magnetism into the parts uh, a problem with the inspection equipment so maybe if you're using a coil which is a dc um system well it'll induce magnetism into the part and doesn't take it back out so you have to have some ac system alternating current system that removes the uh magnetism so say if you've got a, a coil and then you move the part to another station and your ac coil is not actually working effectively just because you step on the pedal or energize it doesn't mean that it's really working so that's why you need to as you mentioned earlier you need to uh make sure you check for it and then things uh personally experienced this a lot when you would uh, use the electric mag based drills you know they induce a ton of magnetism in when they're holding themselves to the part so if you're going to drill out head bolt holes and, and use like say a magnetic based drill um they can have a terrific amount of uh impact and what they leave behind so you have to have some secondary operation to get that out so dave um you know, in your experiences, in the, how how did you measure magnetism? Well, the, of course, the easiest way is to see the, uh, let's say it's a connecting rod. You, you've got them on the bench and you bring in one toward the other and all of a sudden click, you've got two rods holding to each other. So that, that's pretty obvious and, and, and that, but um, generally that's the most obvious and that was the way that we would find most of the magnetism in the engines that we built now we did a lot of part work which means we didn't do a lot of assembling and you don't necessarily notice it as much if you're not assembling the engine so i haven't got a whole lot of history checking for magnetism other than visual or uh seeing things attract each other so coming, you know, from a, a large production environment and, and working from, you know, had time with OE and so forth, uh, been in a lot of manufacturing facilities globally and so forth. So, you know, oftentimes, you know, they'd travel around like a job that I had when I used to be in the gauging calibration department, we actually uh, would validate the um, field indicators or Gauss gauges. Um, you know, there's uh, also a magnetometer. Uh, it, it'll pick up magnetic fields, but that's a little bit different. But what we would typically use in a machine shop environment would be the uh, Gauss gauge. Um, so anyone that's got a, you know, a wet flux system, it's a good idea to have one of those around. Because again, as I mentioned earlier, you're going to input your magnetism with DC. And you need to use alternating current to take it out. Um, there, you know, with the 
magnetic yokes that most people use, like a Magnaflux, you know, it plugs into any 110 receptacle or something like that. That's a, by and large, those are going to be an AC. Now they do offer a DC yoke. So again, you have to have some kind of alternative method to get that out. But what we could actually do to remove some magnetism with the AC yoke is like the magnetic base drill I'd mentioned. You can take that yoke energize it and just drag it around on the surfaces and you actually it's just like you're trying to you know pull something out like you're stretching carpet or whatever you know you take that yoke keep it energized and pull it across the surfaces off the end of the block head whatever you're working on and you can pull that out um there are specs around um the the whole magnetism of what's allowable you want to uh, talk a bit about that with our bulletin yeah so <clears throat> we've uh, got a bulletin uh, in our uh, process software it's a uh, tb2944 magnetism in an engine um, if any of you uh, uh, need a copy of that we can uh, get that to you if you let us know sometime uh, in the future so Permissible magnetism levels, according to, well, I'll just tell you, we've got gotten this information from Caterpillar. Um, they've got a couple uh, of figures here. Uh, injectors and ferrous injector components, they want less than five gauze units. Um, all other ferrous components, they say 15 or less gauze units. So that's actually quite quite a bit. Uh, they may be a little bit uh, on the high end of things. I know some of the other shops, uh, and Chuck will probably mention here, uh, the production shops may not be going that high with things. <clears throat> right. So, you know, I guess, I mean, again, I came from an environment and our specification was plus or minus two. But, you know, you, if you take a look, say, for instance, CAT or some of the OEs, they have such sanitary environments that they're building their engines in um, that maybe they're not so worried about the, that they have particulate around that you could pick up. So, I mean, I would say, you know, even if I had two and I could put a, as you mentioned earlier, you know, a connecting rod, if I could move it past, you know, um, something and I see fuzz on it, then I'm going to try to get that magnetism out because again, we don't all necessarily work in these highly sanitary environments and can make sure that we don't have, um, opportunity to pick up debris. Um, one of the things that, uh, you know, I would say is like connecting rods are probably the, one of the most concerning parts because, you know, if you get that stuff between the, cap mating surfaces um then you increase clearances but the funny thing about a connecting rod is if you bolt the cap on and so you got positive in the cap and negative in in the rod itself or vice versa you can have a situation where it reads zero with a gauss gauge so connecting rods you definitely want to check the two pieces um or else they can trick you and uh well, I've never seen us being able to put, well, I guess there are some connecting rods like that you assemble the crank through um, some of the Marine stuff, Harley stuff, whatever. But typically you're in a situation where you're going to have to bolt a cap to a rod 
And that's when you're going to have your opportunity to pick up some debris and then mess up your clearances and so forth. So it's, de it's definitely important that, uh, you, you address magnetism. So, um, kind of what are some of the things that we would see as the engine builders? Uh, where would we see this? Um, abrasive material and bearings, lifters, um, piston skirts and so on. Um, this is something that really kind of shocked me. And again, I'm going to go back to the uh, magnetic base drill. <clears throat> so that thing would, it would bury the gauss gauge. It would be a huge amount of magnetism uh, that it can induce into the part. And this was even like diesel engine blocks that are pretty good size castings. And when you would put the level on the block, like the level would just snap to the block and stick. And that's kind of where we learned, mm, we got to have to address this and take it out and you can do the AC yoke trick to pull it out. But it also would, you know, since that magnet would stick there, depending on um, what kind of liquid is in the, uh, the file too, um, because those, sometimes they have a bit of an arc in, in that, uh, that vial and the vial, um, is floated and, and you level it based on that particular piece of equipment, but you could see that it would, um, show up in, in the leveling device when you're trying to level it out. So it would quickly, you'd see the, the vial move around. So we'd say, Ooh, we got magnetism, better get it out. And uh, just learned that, okay, anytime we use that mag base drill, <clears throat> we were going to have to take more efforts to get the mag magnetism out because it induced so much. Right. So what type of uh, engine damage have you uh, seen that you really attributed to a component being mag magnetized? Um, so if... If maybe you didn't address a spun rod bearing or something before, um, you you might see some failure there. But typically, kind of abrasive material. Um, the bad thing about a, if you've had a failure, did my failure induce more magnetism? You know, if you're trying to measure the parts, that's why you need to you know you need to kind of have a process and check your stuff because the same those failures, you know, I, I'm generating heat. Say I spun a rod bearing, I'm generating heat and I get the hammering effect. I don't know if anybody's ever just made a expedient magnet. Like you take heat, put the end of the screwdriver, you can heat it up with a torch and then smack it with a hammer and you got a magnet and you can, um, you know, use that to pick up a washer or something like that. Well, some of the dynamics of the engine operation could do the same thing to you. Um, so again, it'd be a little bit hard to read that for sure and say, okay, because it was magnetized, it failed. Right. But I think what you have to be aware of is like, as you're assembling, Hey, why do I have fuzz on my bearings? And why do I have fuzz on the connecting rods or the cylinder head? Um, just be aware of that. Or you try to, you know, not all gaskets are made out of stainless steel. If the head gasket tries to stick itself to the block, um, Hmm. I might be, I maybe need to check something out. Um, and lifters, you know, they're, 
they're like the ultimate mousetrap, right? What gets in or the old, the old roach motel thing, what goes in right. the lifter doesn't get out. But you know, if that thing's already got magnetism and stuff sticking to it, well, you're guaranteed to have a lifter problem then. So yeah, it's a, uh, probably a, a much overlooked, uh, concern. Right. So the, the one component that I uh, saw what we attributed to magnetism was a, a crankshaft where it was a six cylinder diesel and we had, uh, um, the rods wearing into the, into the fill, fillet of the uh, crankshaft. So above the fillet actually. So, uh, it wore evenly like on all six rods and we had, uh, no other reason for the rod to want to go toward the crankshaft that much and many miles on the engine, but debris or dirt wearing in through the oil with the oil, I should say, um, that really wasn't the reason they took the engine apart. Um, it was more a routine overhaul after 50,000 hours or something like that. But so that was a crankshaft that we, we didn't use because it would have required welding on all six journals. <clears throat> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, again, uh, probably a much overlooked, uh, subject. I did see, see a post the other day where someone was checking some rods and it made me happy to know that, um, you know, Hey, somebody's got a gauss gauge and, and they're looking for that stuff. So, so just keep in mind, magnetism in an engine is an unwanted phenomenon and it is best practice to remove any time it is noticed, especially during repairs. So referring back to bulletin 2944, check it out guys. So Dave, I think that was a good, uh, good topic to cover. Um, looking forward, some upcoming, uh, events, uh, you're going to be back on for the next episode too. Um, All right. Huh? Yeah. Looking forward to that. So, uh, fortunately we got a great relationship that Dave's actually built with the folks over at API. And, uh, so Jeff Harmoning, um, is going to be on with us and he's going to be talking with us about pc12 diesel oils um so it's been interesting you know we've learned more and more about oils uh over time you know our good old buddy lake's always involved and then uh like I say dave's got a relationship with the guys at api and and they share a lot of information with us so i'm looking forward to uh having him on they help us in the magazine and so forth and uh so again Again, that's coming up next month, and Dave will be back with us. So, um, other topics. Uh, this is kind of in the uh, the warranty repair world. Um, the 2021 Ford Bronco with the two seven, some early valve train failures. Um, some failures as little as three miles have been reported. Um, typically, somewhere less than 3,000 miles though. So that's pretty crazy, huh, Dave? Unbelievable. 
So um, I think they've had like valve breakages, which means a catastrophic engine failure, right? They're uh, left in the dark, nowhere to go and no way to get home. Yeah. So I don't know if, uh, you know, we take a lot of calls from guys who deal with warranty work. So I don't know if some of that still may get into the shops, you know, if uh, maybe if it broke something and it didn't hit a piston or whatever, or maybe they start swapping out parts. I know that we get a fair number of shops who have dealers bring things to them and they do changeovers where they pull all the valve train parts out, put in a new head, things of that nature. So it, it might mean some work for the shops out there. So uh, it's definitely worth mentioning. Um, we're totally surprised by what our, <laughs> what our shops and members get into uh, based on the tech line. So anyway, just uh, keep your ears open and your eyes peeled and, and uh, this, some of this stuff may be coming your way. So, you know, we, we try to do our best to share what you might potentially see out there and, you know, these bulletins and so forth. So uh, I guess, uh, like I say, that's a pretty shocking one there. So, um, you can subscribe to the, uh, engine professional podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform or listen online at podcast.engineprofessionals.com. And please, please send us an email with questions or comments to EP podcast at AERA.org. Again, if you have any topics that you would like for us to cover. We'd love to hear about it. Got any questions? Um, got any any recommendations? Um, please let us know. And till next time, good seeing you, Dave. Good seeing you again, Chuck, too.